Welcome to Across the Street, your one-stop shop for all things inpatient medicine at the Durham VA, from faculty and staff who know it and love it just as much as you do. Everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Across the Street. Today, we have with us Dr. Scott Robert. For those of you that haven't had the pleasure of rounding with him at the Durham VA yet, he is one of my fellow hospital medicine colleagues. He trained at Duke for his residency. He's an assistant professor in the School of Medicine at Duke. In addition to treating veterans, he also is involved in clinical ethics and medical education at the Durham VA. Welcome, Dr. Robert. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So today, we're going to do the next in our five-part series where we learn about the history of the veterans, specifically in the context of the conflicts that they participated in. And today, we're going to talk about the Gulf War in particular with Dr. Robert. So why don't we start off, Dr. Robert, with you telling me where does your interest in the Gulf War come from? Well, thanks for asking. I was born in the 70s. I grew up in the 80s, so the Gulf War was the first war that I remember living through. It was also just after we got cable, and as we may talk about later, this was a war that was on cable TV 24-7. Yeah, so let's start off with a quick history lesson. What are some of the important historic bullet points that we need to know about the Gulf War to kind of put the experience of our veterans in context? That's a great question. The thumbnail of it was back in 1990, Saddam Hussein was the leader of Iraq and he invaded Kuwait, which is a much smaller country to the southeast of Iraq. It's about a hundredth the size of Iraq. His goal was to annex Kuwaiti oil fields. Whoever controls the oil in the Middle East has the power and has all the money. So there's been a lot of back and forth between the different players in that region, literally for decades. In response to this invasion or incursion, there was an international coalition of about 35 countries that was spearheaded by the United States and specifically by George H.W. Bush, who was the president at the time. And if I say President Bush during this, it's always H.W. Bush, not his son, who was involved with the Iraq war. They toppled Saddam Hussein within four days, which is one of the most remarkable things. I remembered how quick the boots on the ground combat portion of this war was. Yeah, and so I think that we can probably separate the two sections of the war into the pre-combat preparation, which I believe was called Operation Desert Shield and Operation Desert Storm, which was the actual combat portion. Is that right, Dr. Robert? That's exactly right. In response to... Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait, that happened on August 2nd, 1990. Almost immediately, there was a response by the United States. There was something called the Carter Doctrine, which happened under Jimmy Carter in response to aggression by Iran. That basically said, anytime our interests are threatened in the Persian Gulf, we will defend them. And so that sort of gave Bush the pretext. So what he did was he almost immediately, working along with Margaret Thatcher, the prime minister at the time, in the UK was that they started sending reinforcements and building up a presence in Saudi Arabia. Just like Iraq and Kuwait share a small border, there's a long border between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. So the concern was, just like with Kuwait, that Iraq would also go into the oil fields of Saudi Arabia along the southern border of Iraq. Desert Shield built up a presence in Saudi Arabia to protect that from happening. That was about five and a half months, Desert Shield, from right after Saddam Hussein invaded until just the beginning of 1991. Operation Desert Storm, the second half, was only six weeks by comparison, and the vast majority of that time 
was air and naval assaults. The United States, in conjunction with these multiple other allies, although the United States did the vast majority of the participation, they heavily bombed Iraq and the parts of Kuwait where Iraq was present. And then the actual ground invasion was only the last hundred hours of that six-week assault. And those last four days were the days when there was boots on the ground and military vehicles and tanks and things like that. Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight that during all of this action, the U.S. and the U.K. weren't necessarily functioning in a bubble. They had the support of the U.N. Security Council backing them up. So I think Hussein had anticipated that he would have more support in his local area than he really did. He was expecting the other countries in the Gulf to back up his attempt to annex Kuwait. And in reality, I think two-thirds of those countries opposed the move and actually asked for support from the West and from NATO. Right, right, exactly. At the time, they had just gotten out of the Iran-Iraq war. A lot of this is based on very deep-seated tensions between the two denominations of Islam, of, of the Sunni and the Shia. And so there was an eight-year war between Iraq and Iran from 1980 to 1988. At that time, too, Saudi Arabia was also worried about Iraqi aggression. So, yeah, they were somewhat isolated. They didn't have that many allies when they maybe had hoped that they would. H.W. Bush's strategy, especially during Desert Shield, was to build up that coalition as best he would. He was able to do a lot of preparation to have what almost appeared to be like a, if not a united front, but a very, very broad coalition of countries. Right, yeah. The purpose of having all of the air fighting ahead of time was to minimize the amount of time spent actually with boots on the ground. And that was a pretty successful endeavor to, with that goal because the, the ground combat was so short. And, and the Iraqis really just did not have the same resources that the U.S. and their allies had. I think that they were working with tanks that they had inherited from World War II, you know, and so it just, it, it really was an unbalanced fight from an ammunition and from a manpower standpoint, and that's a big part of the reason why it didn't last for terribly long, and so I think Bush called a ceasefire at the end of February on the 28th, and the peace terms were that Iraq would recognize Kuwait sovereignty and get rid of all their weapons of mass destruction, or WMDs, meaning nuclear, biologic, and chemical, but the trade-off was Hussein was allowed to stay in power. Yeah, and that's in a whole nother episode of this is sort of the underpinning of the circumstances that led to the Iraq war, the second Gulf war, if you will. But yeah, it's funny you mentioned the military vehicles. Just as an example, the Iraqis lost thousands of tanks and military vehicles, probably most of what they had, they were very antiquated. The United States, on the other hand, lost about 50. I think they lost less than 10 planes. But again, the sort of lopsided outcome just had to do with how advanced the military uh, equipment was for the United States and its other, you know, developed allies. Another way to look at the lopsidedness of the Gulf War is the number of troops involved on each side and the casualties incurred. There were just under a million coalition forces total, and 700,000 of them were Americans. The Iraq side had almost the same number as the Americans. They had 650,000. But again, to speak to the asymmetry, the Iraqis had anywhere from 25 to 50,000 forces killed in action. The numbers aren't great, but there was less than 300 coalition forces, and only half of those were in combat. 
I'd love to talk more about that lopsidedness in the actual combat, just because I think that it, it informs the experience that our soldiers had. So Dr. Robert, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be a soldier in Operation Desert Shield and in Desert Storm? Who were these veterans who served in the Gulf War and what was it like to serve there? That's a great question. The key thing is that I think a lot of Gulf War veterans are sort of overlooked, you know, given the brevity of the intervention and how overwhelming the result was, how quickly it occurred. I think that a lot of people, and I might even, you know, before I started learning more about this, include myself in that, sort of assumed that it was so quick, it was like ripping off a Band-Aid that there wouldn't have been that much trauma inflicted. And I think that's really unfair and short changes the experiences of a lot of the people that volunteered to serve. So the main things to talk about are the changing demographics. During the Gulf War, American troops that served, their average age was significantly older than any previous war they'd been engaged in, going all the way back, in fact, to the American Civil War. The average age of the Gulf War service member was 27, whereas those who served in Vietnam, the average age was only 21. And there's two main reasons for that. The first one is that the draft had been eliminated just after Vietnam. And therefore, there wasn't uh, 18 and 19 year olds and you know, uh, younger people that were being compelled to serve in the war. Everyone is voluntary and therefore you didn't have the average being dropped because of the late teenagers. The second thing is the dependence that the United States used in the availability of reservists. So reservists, you know, often will have a full-time job and serve, you know, in their spare time as a reservist and, until they get called up. And a lot of those reservists were in their 30s and 40s during the Gulf War. This was a relatively older group of soldiers compared to previous wars, so they had more stressors at home that they were thinking about than previous generations. Is that right? Exactly. So, for example, they were deployed very rapidly, so in a lot of times they weren't able to make the preparations that were needed to get ready. Simple things that affect all of us, child care, their family finances, making a very sudden and, and sort of drastic change from the life that they were accustomed to. You know, they didn't go for months of basic training before they were deployed. They also didn't have anyone to sort of prepare them for what it would be like. You know, when there are wars that go on for years, there's sort of a process where people can learn from the people that were sent in before them and sort of make adjustments and ease the transition. And that simply didn't happen given the fact that they were just thrusted in there. Some of the things that these Gulf War veterans dealt with were in some sense very general for anyone that's sent into a war zone. So they missed their family, of course. They had crowded living conditions. There was long days without a lot of sleep. And there was also a not very comfortable climate. In the winter, it can get very cold in the desert at night, but of course, it still can be very hot because it's a desert climate. Separate from that, the Gulf War veterans also had traumas that they endured that were unique to what they were going through. So there was very widespread destruction that they saw. There were, uh, again, going back to the lopsidedness of it, there were deaths of tens of thousands of Iraqis, and unfortunately, what the soldiers witnessed was a lot of those deaths were by burning and, and bombing and things like that. So it was a lot of very acute trauma that they were witnessing. And so 
In addition to that, they also dealt with some unique stressors to being on the ground that were different from previous wars also. First off, this war was in the desert and just simply being exposed to so much sand and making it difficult to see, particularly during the attacks when the tanks were moving, was very difficult. I think that there are several accounts of people who had to use their thermal sights on their weapons to see their colleagues who were in the same area because there was so much of a sandstorm that they just really weren't sure where they were going. The intel in this war was very poor also. Oftentimes the units were asked to go somewhere, but they really weren't sure what they were going to find when they got there. So they were kind of just going in blind. There was also kind of a constant threat of scud missile attacks, chemical or biological attacks. And even though the Iraqis were not as prepared as we were afraid that they might be, that constant threat of having those things happen has has had an impact on these soldiers in the long term. Dr. Robert, you mentioned that this war was televised and you remember it so well because you watched it on TV. Can you tell me a little more about that? Yeah, the, the influence of the news and media, especially cable news on the war was sort of unprecedented. In the early 80s, you had the rise of CNN, and they made a business decision during Desert Shield that they would anticipate the ground war and invested millions and millions of dollars in satellite technology and other new technology so that they would be able to, for the first time ever, be broadcasting live from a war zone 24 hours a day. What happened was, in addition to preparing, they also had uh, one other lucky break, what they decided to do was when they embedded in Baghdad, along with other news organizations, they made a technological choice to send their satellite feed from Baghdad to Jordan and from Jordan to a satellite down to Atlanta. When the power went out in Baghdad, they were the only ones that were able to send out any live video from Iraq. And so because of that, they monopolized all of the footage that was coming out. The other thing worth mentioning in the run-up to the war was that cable news companies, including CNN and some of the other types of media, during Operation Desert Shield, they, there was a lot of anticipation without a lot of action on the ground. And because of that, the news companies hyped up the anticipation of the war. And specifically, they overstated Iraq's war capabilities and specifically focused a lot on Iraq's prior use of nerve gas, and also forecast that there could have been tens of thousands of American casualties. Again, they were probably falling back on the experience in Vietnam, unfortunately. So a lot of the troops that went in to the Gulf War had been very much exposed to this, this sort of media prognostication and it made that entry into the war for them that much more stressful. So at the time, modern technology impacted not just our experience of the war watching from home, but also the experience of those who were actually serving in it. One area I think is well worth mentioning is the role of women in the Gulf War. It wasn't really until 1983, so you know, just under a decade before the Gulf War, that women were able to serve in combat. They had obviously served in almost all previous wars in some capacity. Women made up 7% of the forces during the Gulf War. Prior to that, the last major engagement in Vietnam, there were only 2%. And as recently as 2010, they've increased from that 7% to 15%. So there has been a you know, gradual increase over time. Prior to the Gulf War, 
women's main role was limited to medical support. Along with the increase in women serving, there was also an uh, increased diversity. More women than men were uh, people of color that served, and the numbers overall continued to increase along the same lines that women serving over the different wars did. That's awesome. So the Persian Gulf War saw to date at the time, the largest deployment of women to a combat theater in American history. And for the learners who are listening, I would encourage y'all to reference your curriculum website for some links to some firsthand accounts of some of the women who served in combat in this war. Even though it was short, they have some pretty fantastic stories. And if you're interested in reading about them, go to your curriculum website and follow the links. Dr. Roberts, let's fast forward to today now. What should we know about our Gulf War veterans? And here at the Durham VA, we have over 27,000 veterans who identify as having served during the Persian Gulf War, and additionally, over 9,000 veterans who served in both the Persian Gulf War and in the Iraq War later on in the early 2000s. So what kinds of conditions, medical conditions, might these veterans have developed when they were there that maybe may have resolved since that time? And what kind of lingering health issues might they still be suffering from today when we meet them? Those are very important questions. The main thing that we are focused on in the medical realm is that group of diseases that are specific to Gulf War veterans. The whole group are three different clusters of of Gulf War illnesses. They're infectious diseases. We would think of as primarily tropical diseases. They are amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, as we know better as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease. And then finally, the Gulf War syndrome. Gulf War syndrome is a interesting term because it's actually the colloquial term for the syndromes or diagnoses that that these veterans returned with. Within the VA system, the official name is called the chronic multi-system illness. But for the rest of my talk, for our purposes, since most people know it is Gulf War syndrome, I'll refer to it that way. So to go through the infections, most of these are not that uncommon to us. All of these are either self-limited or curable with different antimicrobials. The next group of Gulf War illnesses would be the single disease ALS, as I already mentioned. ALS, as you know, is a motor neuropathy, and unfortunately, it's quickly progressive within two to four years of of diagnosis in most cases. The Gulf War veterans that got it were unique. They developed it in a lot of cases within months to years of having returned from the Gulf. A lot of them were in their 20s and 30s, whereas we usually see ALS most commonly in, in patients between their 40s and 60s. The disease itself is rare. If you look at the United States as a whole, ALS has a prevalence about five per 100,000, whereas among Gulf War veterans, the prevalence is double that. So it's still a rare disease, but it's twice as common among Gulf War veterans. And around 2001, the VA finally linked Gulf War service with the diagnosis of ALS and offered all of the Uh, full benefits that would go along with a service-related disease or injury. So, and the causality, first of all, uh, with ALS in general, the cause is unknown, but the causality between ALS and with Gulf War veterans is also not known, unfortunately. 
let me insert a plug here since Dr. Robert mentioned ALS. If you're interested in learning more about that, I would encourage our listeners to go find the Across the Street episode with Dr. Bedlack, who's our local and frankly international expert on ALS. So Dr. Robert, tell us a little bit about the Gulf War syndrome or chronic multi-system illness as the VA refers to it. And I think that they prefer that term because there's such a large and non-specific list of potential symptoms that can be attributed to this condition that they don't want to say it's a specific syndrome because that kind of implies that there's specific checkboxes that you have to have in order to qualify for it. So they actually changed the term to make it easier for veterans to qualify. Right. They didn't make the name what it is to disassociate it with the war necessarily, but they wanted to be as inclusive as possible. Exactly. As you said, the we'll refer to it for our talk as the Gulf War Syndrome, but it's a collection of symptoms and all of them, what they have in common is that they tend to be generally nonspecific and therefore those types of nonspecific symptoms can be a challenge for clinicians and sometimes can be difficult to tease out a specific diagnosis. So the types of things we're thinking about would be things like fatigue, musculoskeletal pain, rashes, diarrhea, depression or anxiety, insomnia, and cognitive problems. To meet this specific syndrome, you would need two of those for at least six months while coinciding with Gulf War exposure. So in order to receive a diagnosis of chronic multi-system illness, that's kind of a diagnosis of exclusion, right? You still have to go through the whole workup and and meet criteria without any other alternative explaining diagnosis. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Yeah. And what's interesting to me about Gulf War syndrome is it can literally impact or cause symptoms from every single organ system. Functional GI disorders are kind of the most common, but chronic aches and pains that often are diagnosed as fibromyalgia can fall into this category also, chronic fatigue syndrome, like Dr. Robert said, and then cardiovascular disease, neurologic symptoms or psychological problems, respiratory disorders, sleep disturbances, pretty much anything in any of those categories that hasn't been explained by an organic disease can fall into this category. So when we admit a patient, or maybe even when we see somebody in clinic who we recognize as being part of the Gulf War era, we should take the time to do a really thorough review of systems in these patients, because especially since the end period for identifying with this syndrome is approaching, we should be really thorough in our list of what chronic ailments these patients might have because they could potentially qualify to get VA support for their service. I agree 100%. The VA has just announced that the end date for meeting the criteria of the syndrome will be the end of this year, so specifically on December 31st, 2021. And at that point, veterans will no longer be eligible to be diagnosed with Gulf War syndrome and then therefore get the benefits that would be offered to them. And the gateway to even getting to that series of questions about symptoms is simply asking them about their military service. What years did you serve? What branch did you serve in? Where were you deployed to? Did you see combat? You know, if they're willing to talk about some of the stressors that they they dealt with too. And then from there, especially for these Gulf War era veterans, some of the symptoms we talked about. When screening for Gulf War related symptoms among veterans you're treating, it's important to keep in mind that there are a lot of Gulf War veterans out there. As mentioned earlier in the talk, there were 700,000 
thousand Americans who served at the time of the original war. On top of that, now there's been 30 years of veterans serving in that same region who would still fall under that title of Gulf War veterans. And the last thing to think about too is of that original 700,000, one third of them are believed to have symptoms that could be attributable to the Gulf War syndrome. Dr. Robert, do we have any idea what the etiology or cause of Gulf War syndrome was? We have ideas, but ultimately nothing is conclusive all these years later. There have been multiple studies that have been requested by the Department of Defense. Still, they've not turned up anything definitive. The most likely causes are thought to be chemical warfare agents. So on the one hand, sarin nerve gas, which was known to be used by the Iraqis. They used it in the Iran-Iraq war. Saddam Hussein even used it on his own people who happened to be Shiites and not Sunnis like him. That was a concern. And the other thing was that our troops were given by the military peridostigmine, which was used in low doses regularly in the soldiers thought to help prevent the damage done by nerve gas, that it could be uh, some type of prophylactic. But that in itself may have also caused some of the problems. There were other non-military related toxins that soldiers were exposed to. So there were big oil fires when the Iraqis retreated from Kuwait back to Iraq. They set all of the oil wells that they were attempting to obtain, they set them all on fire. So there was large fires throughout the area uh, spewing toxic fumes. There was a wide use of uh, pesticides by the military to try to suppress the infection. And then the last thing is the United States used depleted uranium. They use this not as any sort of nuclear weapon, but it was used because it's extremely dense. It was put in munitions that were able to pierce tanks, you know, sort of tank, tank busting missiles, if you will. So, and then the last thing is that the overlap between post-traumatic stress disorder and the Gulf War syndrome, it was, it's even been considered if the manifestations of PTSD could have either caused the symptomatology or certainly would have exacerbated it. Symptoms can be treated, but there's no overall unifying diagnosis and therefore there's no overall unifying treatment. The Institute of Medicine is one of the organizations that's been tasked with studying Gulf War syndrome and they simply recommend an integrated system-wide long-term management approach to what you would use for a lot of other chronic illnesses. The other last thing I'll mention is that there may be a role for cognitive behavioral therapy. I think it's a great and important closing point that a relatively short war compared to others has had some really significant, really long-lasting and at a times kind of mysterious long-term effects. Dr. Robert, this has been such a fascinating conversation. I've learned so much from talking to you today. Thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed it too. Thank you for the opportunity. And as always, the views and opinions expressed today are our own and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of the Durham VA or the Veterans Health Administration. 